this is the World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome into today's episode and we are back with the second part of a two-parter today and we are very excited to welcome back Dr. Hayley Lewis of Halo Psychology to join us to continue our conversation. Welcome Hayley. Hello and thank you for having me back as, as you found with the first episode Jane. I've got a lot to say about a lot of things. I know. I'm really excited about our conversation today because we're going to carry on a little bit of what we were talking about, about your recent research, but we're also going to broaden the conversation a little bit into the world of work today and and our own reflections on it, which is super exciting. Before we do that, for those who haven't listened to the first episode, and if you haven't, link will be in the show notes, so you can go and do that now. But if you haven't, could you just say a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. So I'm a chartered and registered occupational psychologist, which probably won't mean a lot to some listeners. Hopefully it will mean something to others. I specialise in leadership and management behaviour and how this impacts culture and performance. Although my research, as we'll talk about again, and we talked about in episode one, is on something slightly different. I actually have a portfolio career now, so as well as running my own business, I also teach at several universities and I now look after the first part of the doctorate program at Birkbeck. Before setting up my business, I spent almost 20 years working in corporate roles, first at the BBC and then 11 years in local government. And boy, did that teach me a lot, but it's actually helped me as a practitioner and how I show up and work with my clients. Brilliant. Well, it's lovely to have you back and it's lovely to be talking to you today about something a little bit broader. Before we move on to some of our favourite topics, we were talking in the last episode about a piece of the piece of research you did for your doctorate and your experience of doing that around women business owners. I just was thinking about this as I was as I was listening back and editing the first episode. I wondered. This sounds really obvious, but you're a woman. You own your own business. We talked a little bit about your business and the impact on it a little. But I guess I wondered what did you personally take from that experience of researching that topic and and how is it showing up in your practice now? There are two things that, that I personally got from doing the research. The first was making sense of and validating my own experiences, the the ups and downs, particularly in my first year of setting up and, and running Halo and particularly the downs. Um, it helped me make sense of why I found some things particularly hard in particular, not having any work, not getting any client work in in my first six months. So it helped me make sense of that. And then in terms of what it means for me now, I think one of the main findings from my second study, which actually flew in the face of what previous research has said about women business owners over the last 20 years, is what really stood out for my second study is pretty much every woman I spoke to 
had taken the time to really develop their business plan. They're thinking about why their business existed, not just in and of itself, but also the kind of life they wanted. And then the stuff behind that around really understanding your market, sector awareness, competitor awareness, and not being frightened of that. So so my research kind of flew in the face of that. And so what that means for me now is I regularly schedule time to work on my business, not just in my business as this, it sounds very poncy, but as the CEO. So once a quarter, I schedule in kind of half a day called CEO time where I'm reflecting on my business plan for the year, where I'm I'm reflecting on the goals that I've set myself, such as new products or services. And that practice has come out at the back of the research that I did. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but it also makes a lot of bells. Following on from that, as I was listening to our conversation, and it's a funny thing listening to a conversation you're a part of, but I was listening to it and it struck me that there is something terribly meta stroke confusing about when your practice is organizational or occupational psychology or leadership or management, and you are also a business owner stroke working with people. So the thing that James and I always talk about, and listeners will will know this, is that we get these moments where we're like, hang on, are we doing as we say we would do? And I guess I wondered if you could share, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how challenging or how much you find yourself tripping up yourself. So I'll give you a very practical example. James and I talk about celebrating success a lot with our clients. We have huge problems with brilliant organizations who are very fast growth organizations who are so busy looking ahead. They really struggle to bring their staff into that moment of just look, look behind and look how far we've come. And yet it's also a problem for us. So we're a little bit of a hypocrite. And I wondered if, did you find that hard or do you find that a benefit or a bit of both? I personally find it fairly easy. So one of my core values is about role modeling. So being, behaving in a way that's congruent with what I'm saying. That's always been important to me. It was important to me when I was in leadership roles in local government. And it's, it's even more important to me now as a psychologist who regularly shows up on social media and espouses all sorts of best practice, it's core to who I am that I'm as much as possible being congruent with what I'm saying and role modelling to my clients, to students that I work with, to people that I mentor. Do I always get it right? No. But am I always trying? Yes. Yeah. I think there's that importance of trying and and conscientiousness and deliberateness. I mean, James and I talk about intentionality till we're blue in the face with pretty much everyone. If we could only give one piece of advice to all of the people, we'd be like, just be more intentional if you can. But I think what you say makes total sense, but it also gets me thinking about what it is you think makes a good organizational or occupational psychologist in the field. I'm talking very specifically. I know that I know you're very, you've recently been doing some very academic research and you're always referencing the literature quite rightly. But from a practitioner point of view, do you think that sort of walking the walk is critical? And if so, what else is, what else do people need, do you think? My personal view on this, and I know it's easier said than done, and I know it might be contentious for some of your listeners. But in my experience, both as a practitioner myself, but also working with other practitioners, 
the best psychologists, the best occupational and organisational psychologist practitioners are those who actually have been in real-world jobs. Now, I'm not say- saying being an oxyc isn't a real-world job. What I'm talking about is have you been, for example, in a management role in a particular sector? Have you been in a front-facing rowing in a customer service oriented role and experienced the ups and downs of those roles because there are two benefits to that the first is as you and I were talking about earlier Jane it helps you anchor some of the kind of key theories models and concepts but more fundamentally than that it gives you a depth of understanding and a degree of empathy when working with clients one of the regular pieces of feedback I get from my clients, so the majority of my clients are either repeat, so they'll come back to work with me again, either on a different piece of work or a continuation, or it's word of mouth where someone has recommended me. The consistent feedback I get from either of those ways into working with me is they really value my depth as a psychologist, but they also hugely value my experience having been in corporate management and leadership roles where I openly talk about the struggles that I had, you know, the battle scars I earned, having to find another quarter of a million off my budget when I've already given up half a million from my budget that I didn't have. And bulk of my budget is humans in roles, it's jobs, and but the work still needs to be done and having to negotiate with unions and having to motivate that member of staff who the week before was a joy to work with and now they're your worst nightmare. I've seen a lot and I bring that to the table and clients really love that combined with the richness of psychology. So as I say, that's a personal view. I can imagine some listeners going, well, that's easier said than done, or they might have just gone straight into a psychology consultancy role. And it doesn't mean you can't be a good practitioner, but maybe at some point think about stepping out, even just briefly and getting some of that additional experience because it will give you that edge in the long run. I truly think that. So if we were to flip that on its head, what we might say is if people are thinking about going in, if you want, in your view, and I would agree to give yourself the best chance of being the most relatable. Now, I absolutely acknowledge if you are going to be an occupational psychologist who sits in front of a computer and does all of the really hard stuff that I can't, I am not particularly good at around psychometric testing analysis, around building and validating tests, all that kind of work, then I absolutely understand that it may be less of an issue, but definitely I think when you're trying to spend meaningful time with clients, like my experience is working in retail. My experience is working like you can, it doesn't have to be necessarily completely the same as your client, but it's about that ability to empathize, I think, Mm. and demonstrate that empathy. I think Mm. that I always think about trust because I just, it comes up in so many places in our work, doesn't it? Mm. And I just think how much easier is it to trust when you can hear about someone's experience of being in your shoes. And we're human and we have all of these cognitive biases and and other things going on in our brain. And and as organizational occupational psychologists, if we can just speed past some of them to build the relationship faster, we're going to be able to help clients faster. That's, That's kind of where I go to. Based on that, have you got any thoughts on what else makes a good organisational occupational psychologist practitioner? Yeah, I think, and it's one of the things that I say to students that I work with, is be curious about and pay attention to 
and read and listen and get information about stuff outside of occupational psychology. Don't just read stuff that's related to our field. So whether it's HR related magazines or being part of CIPD or or whatever, that's useful. But are you, for example, paying attention to what's going on technologically in the world? Are you paying attention to what's going on with the economy and how that might affect organisations, specific sectors, how people do or don't show up to their jobs, what might be impacting their motivation? Are you paying attention to world events in other parts of the world? I've talked about this a lot, particularly on Instagram, around I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in America in terms of their governance and their the legal stuff because I think it has a you know they're a superpower they are the superpower and it has a ripple effect on other countries around the world and so we should be paying attention to what's happening elsewhere and so yeah I always encourage students read widely be part of groups that aren't necessarily associated there's always a connection I think unlike some of the other disciplines of psychology Ockenorg psych is particularly unique because it touches so much most of us spend a large proportion of our time at work doing jobs there's not a part of someone's life that as Ockenorg psychs when we're unlikely to touch. If you take clinical or forensic, that's a very specific focus. I think Ockenorg psych is, has depth, but also breadth. And so, yeah, be curious, pay attention and be interested in things outside of our immediate domain because there's always a link to what we're doing. Yeah. I, that's it. I think that's the thing I love the most about what we do mm. in our different ways. Every single thing that's going on around you pretty much has someone... Well, it does. It has someone's labour involved. And as soon as Mm. that is, it's someone's experience of labour. And I think that's super cool. You talked a little bit there about your thoughts on practitioners. But I also know that you're really passionate that Organox Psych is for everyone. And it does touch on everyone. And, And you and I have both talked about being in this because we think there's real gains that people can experience from it. So I guess I'd be interested just to hear, I know you're quite active on social media. What do you think is the best way? How can we as practitioners get better at informing more people about things that can help them and what should we be doing and what should they be doing to get more Mm. out of it? This is the thing that I'm most passionate about is, and one of my frustrations as well, particularly about, for example, the pay and firewalls that prevent the public from accessing often really helpful research Actually, it's not just about the pay and files, it's about the way academic research is written. Even I struggle with it. Sometimes I have to read one sentence 30 times and I still haven't got a flipping clue what what the research is talking about. I think our job as psychology practitioners is to act as translators, is to be the bridge and, and kind of make accessible often really helpful research and models and concepts to people who might otherwise never come across some of the stuff that we use. And so how can we best do that? Well, the way we do that is by communicating on things like social media, is by incorporating this stuff into workshops and courses. So anybody who attends any of my courses or workshops, you'll know that I weave in what the research says. So I won't just kind of share a nice little visual of a a model. I'll talk about the research behind it and what we might take from that. But I do, I talk about it in an accessible way, in normal human language. Yeah, I think our job is to act as the bridge, as the the translators. And, And I still don't see enough practitioners out there communicating our stuff 
and our stuff in accessible ways. Um, it's again, it's one of the things I suggest to students when I'm doing career talks, for example, to students. Some of them are doing amazing research with their masters, for example, their masters dissertations. And I say to them, "Are you going to share any of it on LinkedIn or Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever platform or platforms you're on?" And no one ever does. I sometimes I say to students, "Why don't you write a summary about your research and write a blog post for me?" I've got a lot of followers on my blog. It gives you a platform. You never know where it might lead. I've had one student in seven years do that. She got a job. She got approached because her research was relevant to a consultancy and they'd read my blog post and kind of gave her a way in um, to apply for a job. But yeah, there seems to be this reticence and fear. Yeah, there's definitely, I think there's definitely fear because I put myself out there quite a lot. And even I haven't published anything about my research for my master's because I think it's really interesting. I think we are trained and I love that we are trained to be highly critical Particularly, I think Bert Beck's very passionate about it, which is where I did my master's. If you take that lesson well, you see such flaw in your own work. If you're only going to stop at master's and you're going back into the workforce, you're like, well, I don't want to put my neck out. I'm not an academic. And I I think that's a real shame because I feel like everyone should be researchers. It's just, I think the research, so somewhat controversially, I think the research that the administrator in the 20 person organization that I used to work in did in her survey monkey, sorry, name brand. Um, but in her survey monkey, which was a staff review is a, could have been depending on how they'd done it, a little piece of research. Has it gone through any of the levels an academic published paper? had? No, of course not. But if we started to think about all of that, and actually now I mention it, one of our episodes that we did was with Dr. Olive Mivel, who is head of research at Pixar and used to be head of research at Skyscanner. And he was talking about how can people just bring the idea of research into their everyday life? And I love that. And I guess that then sort of leads on to the question, what should they be doing? Do you think the people who aren't researchers, the people who are just out mm. there living their lives, listening to us going, Oh, this is interesting, but I don't know how it's relevant and thinking, Oh yes, org sites, you need to do more of that and share more. What should they be doing? Or what, what do you think they mm. could do to benefit from all this? So the first thing that springs to mind, Jane, is even if you're not a researcher, there must be something you're interested in and care about in your practice. Maybe there's an approach that you've learned about and that you use quite a lot and you've seen the impact. Talk about it. Talk about it. You don't have to be an academic to share models and concepts and theories. You can talk about it in terms of why you use it, how others might benefit from using it. And I've started to see some folk do that on places like like LinkedIn. And I think I really like your point about because I don't call myself an academic, I call myself a pracademic with actually my main foot in practice with a little smattering of academia. But I really like your point around we can all be researchers in our everyday life. And it goes back, I suppose, to my my answer to your previous question around reading lots, you know, getting engaged in conversations more. So I love some of the conversations that come up on my comments threads when I post something about a study or a concept. I love the conversations that take place And the best conversations are those that start to take place between people. They're not with me where people start to share stuff with each other and ask questions of each other. That's how we can be mini researchers as well. I learn something 
every day from from the comments threads where somebody shares an additional model or concept that I haven't even thought of. So I think you don't have to be an academic. Think about the stuff that you care about that you're, you use regularly and think about how you could share and talk about that so that it might benefit others and then participate in conversations, whether that's in face-to-face sessions or online. And be curious, be humble and curious in those conversations as well. And you might be surprised what you learn as a result of sharing some of your own stuff. Brilliant. Thank you. And that kind of leads us to a subject that we didn't mention last time, but I feel like I would not be doing my duty as a podcaster if I didn't ask about it. So one of the many ways that I come across your work is on LinkedIn with your sketch notes. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has zero visual ability, um, let alone drawing ability, I find them stimulating and arresting to just stop for a minute and remind me of a model I haven't seen for a while or a theory I haven't seen for a while or maybe something that I've been meaning to read that you've kindly gone ahead and read and then done me a nice visual of. And I guess I was just a little bit interested in what, why you take the time to do that. And if you think there are other things like that you'd like to see the profession doing more of to engage people. Yeah, so there's two reasons I do the sketch notes. The first is to help others. So this goes back to our earlier conversation around making what I think are useful concepts and frameworks and constructs accessible to the public and hopefully inspiring some of them to do their own further research. And there's nothing that gladdens my heart more than when a manager or a practitioner either in the comments thread or they send me a direct message say, this really inspired me and I've, I've, I've gone off to find the research or can you send me a link to the journal article or I've gone and bought the book that just feeds me, it nourishes me. And the second is I learn, you know, I... There's something so immersive. From, I, I almost find it like a form of meditation. So, and who doesn't like a bit of colouring in? So, because of the way I do that, I don't, I don't do it digitally. So it's pen, it's pencil first, and then I go over in ink. So it takes me about an hour and a half to do a sketch note, and actually, it helps anchor my own understanding or further deepen my understanding of something or questions might pop up, which then lead me to do some further reading that I hadn't thought about before. So I learn as much from doing the sketch notes as hopefully others learn from doing them. I get a lot of feedback about my sketch notes. I also get a lot of questions about how I do them, why I got into them. Particularly this year, the feedback that I've gotten the most, either publicly or privately, is there's something about the sketch note stands out on LinkedIn or, or Instagram, but particularly LinkedIn, which is my main platform. And people like that. So there's something about the colour and the simplicity cuts through the noise and often the bullshit that we see on LinkedIn. And then people are always really surprised by, but really like the depth of the message in the post behind the sketch note. So the feedback that I get is, oh, I can see that you're not just putting out any old, you're not just putting a colourful thing out, actually really helped me understand the thing, the concept, the model in a way that I hadn't thought about before. So there's something for practitioners out there or academics or pracademics about find ways to communicate messages that work for your audience that you're trying to get to. The trap I see lots of people 
fall into is they're communicating in a way that they're used to or that works for them. You're not talking to yourself. Well, you might be, I don't know. Who is it you're trying to talk to and reach? What kind of stuff do they like? What kind of content seems to resonate with them? Where do they go for that content? And then give it to them. You know, the thing that whenever I see them now, like, A, I always look at them because I'm like, oh, I remember that model. And now (laughs) I can use that. A number of times it reminds me of something I've forgotten. And I'm like, oh, that's excellent. But also I think for me, they remind me of the importance of the accessibility of what we do Mm. because I am, and we talked about this in the first episode very briefly, I am Mm. so frightened strong, but I am so frustrated by the fact that, and I need, again, I need to do the research, but what it appears to me that where people are practicing organizational occupational psychology, it is in large businesses and government organizations is uh, hugely as well, to be fair. Mm -hmm. But if you, you know, I think I said it before, like, it's an insane number of small and medium-sized enterprises in the UK. It's far the most common situation and they just don't have access to it. So like every time I see a sketch, I'm like, yes, we need to do more of that. Speaking of stuff that you've put out there that's helped people, I've been asking people recently, James and I've been asking people recently, do you have any favorites? So we're really curious, right? Because everyone who listens to our stuff when the two of us are doing doing podcasts or seminars stuff, they will know that James and I have like some pieces of research that we've just so the nun study for example if you don't know it a shout out to kevin tia who like fangirl over the nun study with him sometimes is a piece around positive psychology and it's a it's a brilliant study things like that get my heart racing for how much i think they help other people understand you've done so many of the sketch notes and you, you've been practicing so long any favorite models theories pieces of research that you think everybody should have a read of so there's actually three theories They're all kind of in the same family, I suppose, that are my go-tos that I I love and and seem to inspire and motivate many of my clients. So the first is the theory of thriving at work, which was developed by Gretchen Spritzer and several colleagues, including Adam Grant, um, back in 2005. This is a theory that I don't often see mentioned or talked about. But I think it's a beautiful theory, has some really interesting elements to it. It was actually one of the theories that was core to my own research, which is why I'm so passionate about it. But actually, I use it with lots of managers that I work with. So the theory of thriving, 2005. And then two others are self-determination theory by Desi and Ryan and psychological empowerment by Gretchen Spritzer. Again, all three of those theories talk about the importance of autonomy and learning and having the kind of the skills to do what it is you need to do and that sense of belonging. And those are the, those ingredients are so fundamental to us being our best selves and doing our best work. So they're my three go-tos. In terms of, t- I'm being really cheeky now, but in terms of two studies, I love a systematic review. I don't know if doctors Rachel Lewis and Joe Yarker listen to this podcast, but if they do, they'll laugh because I'm a big old geek for systematic reviews. Not many people like them. I love them. And so two of my favourite studies are systematic reviews. One 
was uh, by Alex Newman and colleagues about psychological safety. So the benefits of psychological safety and the factors that can help facilitate it, hugely powerful piece of research. And then a South African study did a systematic review of the characteristics of servant leadership. Nobody had done that before. And that can provide a bit of a blueprint for any leader wanting to develop a servant leadership style. And of course, I did a sketch note about that. And lots of the leaders I work with have found that study and me talking about it and sharing the characteristics really helpful as a way for them to further their own development. So I'm being very cheeky. I've shared five, but I hope you'll let me off. I'll totally let you off. I might start christening it Haley's Top 5. Dr. Haley's Top 5. If I manage to do it before we publish the episode, I might even try and get those on a page somewhere. So that I'll share them with you. I would, yeah, I would agree with a lot of that. It's interesting. I think I'm fascinated that people don't like systematic reviews. Anyone I know who's got some level of academic experience, like university, nothing to do with Auxide, they say to me, what's the best way to get my head around some things? I will send them off to, for example, a systematic review of psychological safety, because I think it's the best, if they can get it and then get through it, it's probably the quickest way to do it. So I'm surprised you say that, but I, mm. I get what you mean. They're not always, I mean, they're the grunt horse, right? And to do a systematic review properly, you know, there are certain steps you need to go to through. And if you don't have a team of researchers, you know, wading through 17,000 articles that come back to siphon out what is and isn't right is no easy task and being clear on your criteria. But because I'm a very systematic person, I love a process. And also we know that a systematic review, particularly combined with a meta-analysis, is among the most reliable form of research you can get. I'm listening to you and having a geek moment because I, <laughs> I find it a little bit confusing is the wrong word because I don't find it confusing. I'm always surprised that there isn't like a library of core systematic reviews and a clear list somewhere of all the systematic reviews that don't exist, but are around things that they probably should exist because we use them extensively or that they exist, but they're not great and they could be built on. Like, I feel like the people who do them are so process driven and tend to be incredibly, well, they're just brilliant at managing huge, vast amounts of information and data, right? So they're very, very meticulous. And, and I said this, I've, I've said this to one of our guests the other day, wouldn't it be amazing if you go onto Google Slogola and you could click on something and little lines came out of it and like all the systematic reviews that were cited came to the left and then all of the empirical research that's come to the right and then you know method like yeah. mixed methods down here and yeah. like so you could have like this understanding of how the literature builds on the literature builds on the literature there would it would just be such a leveling up of textbooks so simply <laughs> it really frustrates me so i'm glad you've met a uh, shout out for systematic reviews that i wasn't expecting to say <laughs> Woo. I know. You know, there's people listening going, thought they were all right. And okay. now they know different. Now they know differently. <laughs> I've got one last question for you, which could could be quite a big one, but you can choose not to answer it. Quite yeah. a big one. So we talk a lot about how, certainly in the UK, and I think, I think largely in the West, that a lot of rights and societal changes to things like inclusion and exclusionary practices, diversity, things like that. The big stuff, the idea of a weekend comes from fundamentally redesigning of labor. You know, we talk a lot about how society is shaped largely through the prism of work. And, and one of the things that, that we've talked about a lot is how work, certainly in the UK, can get better to grips with removing exclusionary practices, particularly, well, around protected and around non-protected characteristics. And so for me, I think, maybe it's hopeful, but for me, that's where I think a big, big part of 
organizational occupational psychological safety should be and Mm. organizational and occupational psychology sorry um should be and probably will be focused over the coming years and i guess i just wanted to ask you what do you think the immediate midterm future is where do you think op can most help society at the moment or should be great question i don't have a hugely in-depth answer i've been thinking about this stuff a lot and I've been thinking about my culpability and Organox Sykes' culpability in feeding the capitalist narrative of your worth only comes from the job you do and the work that you do. And in particular, if you're prepared to go above and beyond, you know, work. I had somebody, I had a manager send me a question on LinkedIn today about how he can get somebody to his instinct is they're just doing enough and I wanted to well I am going to go back and say why is that not enough why is doing enough not enough why do you need them to get more they're paid to do enough their job and I think we've been sometimes culpable or often culpable as oxites about how to help managers and organizations get more out of people to get them to put in discretionary effort and I have to say If I think about myself, I'm ashamed to have been part of that. One of the things that's led to me thinking about this is a book I read last year. And I have to say, it's it's the most powerful book I've read this century. So in the last 20 years, is Why Laziness Does Not Exist by Dr. Devon Price. It's not an easy read, but it talks about how our work practices are so toxic and unhealthy and geared around a capitalist narrative. Is that stuff easy to dismantle? Is it easy to push against? No. Does it mean we shouldn't be questioning that stuff and shouldn't be questioning the role that we play as practitioners and academics in perpetuating overwork and people doing stuff for free and people not feeling safe that if they don't go above and beyond, they're going to lose their job? Absolutely, we should be questioning ourselves and our role in that moving forward. So I don't have a straightforward answer. Rather, I've got questions that I pose to myself and other practitioners. And I think that's part of the reason I asked, right? Because James and I talk about that question all the time. Mm. And we do bits because that's why we do what we do and why we're a CIC and why we do bits. But it's like, it's like everything, right? It's like science, like all of them, you know, it's not, it's not the research. It's not the model. It's not the practice. It's what you do with it. It's what your intentions are. And you never forget having a big old row in our master's, in my master's second term about goal setting theory, right? Mm. And whether goal setting theory in, in itself effectively can't, humans can't be trusted mm. <laughs> was where the conversation was going. And I guess I feel like it's about the truest sense of education without, and I know I'm going to sound like, I'm going to begin to sound like I'm just drifting off into realm of like <laughs> naivety. But we did a podcast a few months ago about employee engagement and the fact that yes, PERMA and many of the things that we, you know, STD, self-determination theory, lots of the models will tell us that if we have purpose, if we have connection, if we have this from our work, then it's a great thing. But no one asked the bigger question of why does it have to come from work and should it have to come from work? Absolutely. And no one says, and what is wrong with a fair exchange of labor for money? It's really in my mind at the moment. So for those of you who don't know, in the UK at the moment, we're seeing a bit of union action, which we haven't really seen to any great lengths, certainly not successfully capturing public interest for a very long time. Mm. And 
the expectation I would have from someone who is very much a supporter of the capitalist narrative would be, well, we've all got our own abilities and we should absolutely negotiate them to the best of our ability. And then they watch a load of people getting together and doing it. And they're like, no, not you. I didn't mean you. Yeah. No, you can't do that because that's less money for the shareholders. I go around in circles because I'm not even 100% sure it's capitalism, but so, very specifically shareholder capitalism that mm. creates the biggest of our problems. And, and people will have heard James Nyes in our responsible business episodes talking about different ownership models. You mentioned economics, and I think it's really mm. important. Economics, society, social psychology, or occupational psychology mm. and sociology probably feel like they very much help inform each other to understand how we can how it's okay to have like dreams that are about like yourself. Absolutely. I feel, I feel like self, it's really weird because individualism is a thing, right? Mm. Individualism is totally a thing at the moment. Everyone's like very much about themselves, but, but in work, it's still very much, no, you should be beholden to someone else and you should be working on behalf of someone else. I don't know how we fix that. And it's reassuring to hear other people think about that. If someone was not an organ occupational psychologist, but was thinking about this stuff a bit, you mentioned that book, mm. which sounds great. Is there anything else that they can do or that they should read or be listening to? What do you listen to to keep yourself informed on stuff like that? Well, for podcasts, I actually listen to stuff to switch off. I actually listen to a lot of paranormal podcasts. So I'm not the best person to ask about that stuff, <laughs> which my husband finds oh. hilarious. He's like, but you're a scientist. I'm like, yeah. And so as a scientist, just because we can't see something. So yeah, so I'm not the best person to ask, but I do, I do consume a lot of news, but I make sure that I am consuming news across the spectrum of political ideology. I'm a member of a couple of think tanks. So for example, the RSA, they're always sharing latest thought pieces, a, a big focus for the RSA. So for, for listeners who aren't familiar with, so it's the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturing and Commerce. It's 250 years old. It's a, it's a society aimed to help social good. So the big focus is social good. So I read a lot of the research and watch stuff that comes from the RSA that's about trying to improve society, the future of work, but but from a societal good perspective. So yeah, I, I kind of consume a lot of different things, again, which often lead me to have more questions than answers. I think there's something powerful even in that. I think it comes back to there's something about noticing. We can't develop ourselves. We can't change or evolve our practice, whether we're psychologists or whether we're non-psychologists, if we don't first notice where we're at and we don't notice how we feel and think about something. We, we then can't execute change or do something differently. We have to notice first. And the, personally, for me, the thing that helps me notice is by, as I say, consuming stuff across a wide spectrum whether that's news, whether that's videos or so on and so forth. So again, that's what I'd encourage people to do. Brilliant. While you were saying that, you made me realise that something had been bugging me that I hadn't gone digging for for ages, just gone digging while you were talking, because I wanted to share this with you. And you might already know this, but I, so I had a thing for a long time about John Lewis, which is a organisation in the UK. It's a retail organisation and they are a partnership. Mm -hmm. and that means that there is no one owner. They are owned by the people who are employed there and you automatically become a partner when you work there with some exceptions. So I used to bang on about their purpose statement because their purpose statement used to be, and I'm going to read you a quote from it, the happiness of all our members through their worthwhile, satisfying employment in a successful business with success measured on its ability to sustain and enhance 
the position both as an outstanding retailer and as a thriving example of employee ownership. Now, to me, for years, that has been about as good as it gets. How brilliant would it be if businesses existed to give us great work rather than the other way around? And then I found out it's changed and they've changed it. I'm a little bit brokenhearted, but I I guess my point is you say about pay attention. It's things like that that make you sit up and notice because you're like, well, if if they're going in that direction, Mm. what does that leave us? So I love that point you make about just be curious and look out and and really pay attention to what's going on around you because things are, you know, and try and think about them. One of the books that I always recommend, and it is old, but there's some wisdom in it. One of the books I always recommend to students is Organizational Development by French and Bell. It's not that cheap, so but I know lots of universities have copies for those who are students or maybe academics listening to this. And there's a really powerful in the in a chapter about culture and values. They talk about organizational values being a reflection of the zeitgeist of the era. And so one of the things I always get students to reflect upon, we look at the different zeitgeists, so civil rights in the 60s, unionism in the 70s and early 80s, the dot-com boom, and then obviously over the last five years, it's been this thing about build a wall and we want to be independent. And it's been really interesting looking at how organisational values evolve and reflect what's going on in the wider world and the zeitgeist of the era. And and again, that another reason why we should be paying attention to what's going on, not just in our own country, but elsewhere as well, because it can have an impact on mission statements and values such as the John Lewis example you've just given. And obviously they changed. I think they changed Chief Exec in the last few years. So it doesn't surprise me. Often the first thing a Chief Exec does is get their fingers all over the mission, vision and values statements. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I think means we've run out of time. We probably ran out of time about 10 minutes ago, but thank you for indulging me in that very wide ranging conversation. Before we finish, just a quick word from you. Are people be interested in what you're doing, what you've been talking about today? How do they find out more about you and your organization? One of the easiest places to find me is on LinkedIn. Just put in Hayley Lewis, you'll find me. And yeah, reach out. I'm always happy to connect with people. There's also my website, which has lots of free resources, which I'm guessing will be in the show notes, Jane. So you can delve into that and access all sorts of free goodies, hopefully to help you, whether you're a practitioner or a manager or leader in the workplace. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question, or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops, and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 